Exodus chapter 20, looking particularly at verse 17 this morning. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 78. And let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding his word. Indeed, Lord, as we've just been singing, teach us your ways. Thank you that when we open your word, you speak clearly to us. Give us insight and understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. Change hearts today. Change our lives. Change our attitudes. Change the things that we desire that we might treasure you above all things. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Exodus 20, verse 17 reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. This is God's word. Well, I discovered yesterday that if you put two two two-year-olds and one one one-year-old into a room full of toys, you get a ton of illustrations on the topic of covetousness. (laughs) I mean, if you want to see how human beings act with some kind of inordinate an unhealthy desire for something that someone else has, babysit. <laughs> You'll see it. It's fascinating. I mean, even in our, that, that room yesterday, I mean, the, the ratio of child to toy must have been something like 1 to 30. Yet, for some reason, a certain toy in the hands of another makes that toy all the more desirable. And kids will do anything to get it. Sadly, this inordinate and unhealthy desire for something that someone else has doesn't seem to go away as we grow up. No. Well, our teenagers, of course, are joining in the the song with uh, Sharpie from the Disney hit High High Street Musical. No. High school musical. Oh dear. Sharpie's song, I want it all, she sings. You know, wanting the lifestyle of the superstar, the personal stylist, a publicist, and superstardom. She wants what other people have. But it doesn't just stop with the teenagers. We don't grow out of it when we turn 20, do we? Young adults are singing along with R&B artist Usher to a song called Appetite. He sings... Wife at home, wedding band. I'm a lucky man. You'd think I'd be satisfied, and truthfully I am. No, he's not. Listen to this. But lately I find it so hard to sleep, struggling with the part of me that wants to run the street. In other words, he wants to be out in the town. He is coveting the lifestyle of his single friends. But it doesn't just stop there. No matter what generation you belong to, we're all singing the same songs. If you are an 80s rocker with shoulder pads and all, you are singing with Queen. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it 
now. And if you're a ballad-loving child, even of the 1930s, you're singing along with Judy Garland somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. It's a song about chasing the dreams that you dream of, generally being discontent with what you have in your life. Everybody wants something that somebody else has. And I hope we see even from some of those illustrations that our struggle with this inordinate and unrestrained desire called covetousness is a very real struggle for each and every one of us. And it's a lifelong struggle for each and every one of us. This is what coveting is. Coveting is this inordinate or unrestrained desire. Now I want to qualify this by saying not all desires are bad. Desire can be good. Indeed, God gives desire as a good gift to be used within the appropriate boundaries, used in the right way. The Bible is absolutely full of cases where men and women of God have desired things and have not sinned in the process of desiring these things. For example, in Proverbs 8.22, we read, He who desires a wife desires a good thing. So when you desire the same, even in, as, as what God desires for you, it's not an evil thing. So it's okay to want to get married. It's just, you know, it's okay to want to have a wife. It's just your neighbor's wife that you shouldn't desire. So that tells us quite clearly a misdirected desire turns a good desire into a bad desire. Or what about the example in 1 Timothy chapter 3? If anyone sets his heart on becoming an elder... He desires a noble task. God sees that desire as a good thing. But if that desire is based on a yearning for a position of influence, then that turns that good and healthy desire into something sour. It's no longer a noble desire. It's shameful and ignoble. And that tells us that even good desires that lack godly integrity become bad desires. But but let me be clear, if we have desire and ambition, even some kind of vision, and if the motive and the method behind those desires and in the outworking of those desires are God-centered for his glory and not selfish for our own gain as an end in itself, these things are excellent, these things are good, these things are to be pursued. David Powlison really helps me understand the difference between the good and the bad desires and even helps me to understand where we tend to cross the line from having good and healthy desires which then become unhealthy, inordinate desires, sinful desires. He says, the evil in our desires lies not necessarily in what we want but in the fact that we want it too much but it's uncontrolled desire we see uncontrolled desire is the root of all kinds of evil in our lives if a person has an unrestrained desire for example for money well they can resort to ungodly business dealings to make more money that becomes the ultimate thing for them that becomes the thing that they pursue It can even lead some in the pursuit of 
money and fulfilling this desire for greater wealth to theft. Or if a person has an unrestrained desire, a real covetousness for reputation and to be esteemed well by other people, well, a person can lie to make himself more likable. A person can crush another person's character in order to make him look, himself look better. There are many, many ways that uh, this covetousness can lead to, to sin. And indeed, if a person has an unrestrained desire, for example, for another person's spouse, well, that person can easily fall into sexual sin. You can, and you can see it all happening, can't you? I mean, I can see unrestrained desires at work in me. And how easy it can be to let these desires run without rain. I mean, I can see an advert on TV or see a friend with some item, for example, and think, oh, I would like that. And I find it so easy to progress to the stage where I just really cross the line, where desire swells and I convince myself not only do I want it, but I need it. And I must have it. To the extent where I, I think if I don't get it, then my life is just not worth living. It's very melodramatic inside my head. Now you can replay that a hundred times over with some of your own desires. Which when left unrestrained, covetousness itself is of course wanting something too much. Pursuing something with an unhealthy and evil desire is, is sin. But that covetousness, even when left unrestrained, just opens the door to a whole range of sin. And such are the dangers with an unrestrained desire. It's not good. This is why God is giving us this Ten Commandment. This is his great concern for us. As he says, you shall not covet have an unhealthy and inordinate desire for your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey, not his possessions, not his relationships, not who he is or what he has. I think the extent of which this this the the extent to which we are ensnared by this 10th commandment and captured by it and drawn attention to it is, is, is highlighted for us in the fact that God just includes, as he speaks from the mountain at Sinai, you're not to desire anything. The word anything is in there. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. In his eyes, it's sin. But why? Well, Coveting is condemned by God. Coveting is condemned by God because it betrays, first of all, a heart that just desires worldly things. God, of course, wants his people on this occasion, as he has rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt, shown them his salvation, saved them wonderfully, brought them through the waters to this mountain where he is forming his people and calling them how to live in such a way that they will reflect his character and show off his glory to the nations around. He is encouraging them in light of the fact that he has saved them, in light of all of the things that he has done for them. 
But even in light of the fact that he has, since they've come from the water of the Red Sea to this point at the mountain, even irrespective of their grumbling all the way along, God has graciously provided for them food from heaven and water to sustain them. He is encouraging them, wanting all people to to treasure him above all earthly things. And of course, we people desire More money, bigger houses, faster cars, flashier clothes, believing truly that life does consist in the abundance of possessions and stocking up our houses with things that we think are treasures, but really in the Lord's eyes are trinkets. But the replacement of God with the things of the world really is at the heart of idolatry. Actually, if our covetous desires go unrestrained, we we in a sense become our own God. In the sense that we make sacrifices to to serve ourselves, not God. And we think that the pleasing of the self is paramount, not the pleasing of God. So we blind ourselves to the fact that the things we accumulate, well, that they actually have a shelf life. They deteriorate. They decay. They die. Or if they don't, we do. And such earthly treasures will not serve us in eternity. Coveting is condemned by God because it also betrays an ungrateful heart. God wants all people to worship him with grateful hearts for he's worthy to be praised for his great provision. But when we end up coveting, yearning for something that someone else has, we are in effect saying to God, what you've given to me is not enough. I am not satisfied, nor am I content with your provision. And we cannot possibly be grateful to God for his inexhaustible kindness to us if we're constantly coveting more than what God has been pleased to give us. And here's where we see it also betrays that dissatisfied heart. Of course, God wants all people to find their supreme joy and total satisfaction in him and to honor the constancy of his provision with that contentment I've been talking about. That contentment, of course, is the indicator to us that we recognize God's divine prerogative as the sovereign ruler of all things, from whose hand we receive every good and perfect gift, even though we don't deserve it. James 1.17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Well, people who are dissatisfied with what they have in life and constantly ablaze with evil desire, which wants what God has not been pleased to give them, will not be satisfied by God because we end up just feeling that God will always let us down which is in fact so far from the truth so how about you this is a struggle if you're here today you're not a Christian this is a particular struggle you might be sitting here thinking all of the things you're talking about are the very things that I'm pursuing in life this is why I get get up on a Monday morning and go to work you know I'm encouraged. The advertising on the TV and and in magazines, all these things. Our culture is just serving up for us a table of delight saying, come and take your pick. Desire is good. 
Don't just want it. Come and get it. And do whatever it takes to get it. Well, such inordinate, unhealthy desires are seen by God as evil and sinful. And he calls us to give an account for these sins. And even for those of us who are Christians, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and sought forgiveness for treasuring the world above God, well, we still struggle with these things daily and are required to be dependent on his grace. Maybe even over this Christmas time, you see your friends coming in, they're wearing a flashy new jumper. Or they have a new toy. Or you see something that you think, I want that. Maybe it's far more serious than that. Maybe, maybe it's an inordinate desire for another man's wife or another lady's husband or something like that. What are we doing with these desires? Do we think it's okay to just unleash them a little bit, give them a little bit of free reign? Well, it's a dangerous thing to do so. It's, it's condemned in the 10th commandment. And those who indulge in fulfilling sinful desire end up plunging themselves into ruin. Turn with me quickly to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a song by a man called Asaph. He's he's written a number of songs in this book of Psalms and As it turns out, he too was at one time singing, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. He had said in verse 2, well, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. What's he talking about? Where does he feel that he is having a wobble, if you like, in his faith? I envied, in verse 3, the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he envied them. His covetousness had proceeded on to envy. So much so that he didn't just want what other people had. He actually moved to resent others for having what they had. So he's essentially saying, God, I am not happy with what you have given me. And I'm so unimpressed by what you've given to that person. He wanted what they had. But by God's grace, he was given understanding eyes to see the end of those who continue in breach of God's law by fulfilling these insatiable desires that just keep on coming in life. Look at verse 17. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was as as God's people were singing their songs, maybe as the word of God was read out in the sanctuary of God, at some point he realized in verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood there, in other words, the wicked the covetous people who treasured the world and did not treasure God, that he saw and understood their final destiny. Understanding that they, as it goes on to say, are placed on, a slip, on slippery ground and by God in his right and holy and just judgment would cast them down to ruin. As he sees things through, through the lens of scripture, if you like, Understanding things truly as they are, his whole perspective on God and the world was just flipped right upside down, where he once desired worldly things and envied those who were wallowing in the things that they had coveted and accumulated. He now desired God alone. He now desired God. 
God alone. Look at verse 25. Can you say this this morning? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has, what's the word? Nothing. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's a prayer of faith, isn't it? That's a good song to sing. All I want, Lord, are those good desires that are completely in line with your holy and perfect will for my life, that I would be pleased and contented with what you have provided for me, and that I wouldn't seek to take from you that divine prerogative of sovereignty. Who am I? To suggest that I do not have what I should have. Well, that's pride. And who am I to resent another for the things that you have chosen to give? Maybe you're here and you know that at this time you've not put your hope in God. Maybe you've heard this morning even God's people sing praises to God. You've heard the word of God read to you. I wonder if you, like Asaph, have been given eyes to see this morning your sin for what it is and the ruin to which it leads without the cross of Christ. You see, that's the difference between those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. Sadly, our covetous comes, covetousness can creep in and, and, and come back to haunt us, sometimes quite regularly, even when we become Christians. But the difference is we have a saviour. Whereas those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are left careering toward that ruin. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and said, and asked for forgiveness for those covetous desires are heading towards glory. Oh, you say, how can that be? Well, because we've put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ who on the cross paid the price for all of our sin and all of our covetousness. He paid the penalty for that himself. And granted us grace to follow him. Christ is crucified, friends, for our sin. And you too can know this hope. That Christ died for our sins. It's an amazing thing. I mean, the one against whom we had sinned, God himself, became a man in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who in his life desired nothing. Nothing but the will of the Father to live a holy, sinless life, to die on the cross, to rescue all who are, who are just so easily swallowed up by these insatiable desires. And he rescues all who come to him in faith and repentance because by dying in our place, by paying the penalty for our sin, he has made peace between God and sinners who repent. Sinners who turn away from their life of covetousness and a delight in treasuring the things of the world and turn to God in faith to treasure him. But that's not all. This is the glory of the transformation that Christ brings for us and wins for us by his death and indeed by his resurrection. This is no single transaction, you understand. This is life transformation. This is new beginning for us. I mean, we all think that at the turn of the year, new beginnings come. 
as that clock ticks past midnight, right, here we go. We're ready for a new year, January the 2nd. Oh dear. We fall into the same mistakes. Listen, brothers and sisters, friends here today, just because the clock ticks into another year does not mean that life is going to change. It's deceptive. And just because we make resolutions at the start of a new year does not necessarily mean that we have some new strength to achieve that kind of change that we are looking for. No, the true beginning, truly the new beginnings come when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have our hearts absolutely transformed by his grace. When we are given eyes to behold him for who he is, to see him as the one true and living God who changes us, who gives us new life. New life, what does that look like? New life with new desire. New desire, not unholy desires, evil desires, good desires. And a deep desire, even in that desire, to pursue more of God, to pursue more of him. To desire the glory of God. To desire fellowship with him. To desire the things that are above and understand that there and there alone is our satisfaction and our contentment found. Because praise God that whenever we put our hope in him, he opens our eyes to the deceitfulness of the things that we covet. Showing us that there is no satisfaction in these things. Even as... David read from us earlier from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' words, telling us there can be no satisfaction in stuff. And in the accumulation of worldly things, they burn, they get stolen, they corrupt, they dissipate, they diminish. Truly, brothers and sisters, truly, friends here today, if you're not a Christian, God is all we need. Therefore, God is all we ought to desire you want to boil it down there it is god is all we need therefore all we ought to desire he gives us new life with new desire with a new contentment what can that look like paul tells us turn to philippians 3 with me the new testament philippians chapter 3 listen to this I have learned to be content, verse 11. Sorry. Is it four? Anyway, let me read it to you. I have learned, I have it in my notes here. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Great, great words. Showing us the kind of contentment that Jesus offers us through a transformed life when we put our faith and trust in him. Is this a message you're carrying out, brothers and sisters, to your family members, to friends, to people at work who don't know him? 
who are careering towards this ruin and pursuing the fulfillment of desires that though they may fill them for a moment, they are achieving no eternal good. This is the gospel that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is the life that is open to those who put their faith and trust in him. Shall we tell them? It's incredible to be able to say that. I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I'm listening to a, 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 a CD just now of all these new old hymns, it's called, old hymns put to new songs. And there's one in particular which just says, In harvest feast or in fallow ground, my certain hope is in Jesus found. So whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, God is all I need. Therefore, God is all I ought to desire. So when we have that kind of mindset, when we are given grace to be content with the circumstances of life, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are never discouraged or frustrated by adverse circumstances because we're confident. We actually have faith to believe what God says in Romans 8, that he is working together for our good and that we will know contentment because we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. Friends, if you're here today, you're not a believer. This, this life can be known by you as well. All that it takes is for you to see the reality of the grace and truth that are in Jesus. To confess your sin before God and trust in the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins. You too can have a life that is transformed by his grace. Brothers and sisters, we too can live lives dependent on that grace also. Because it's a continual grace. He never leaves us, never forsakes us, never stops pouring out that grace on us day by day. The eternal God, invisible, only wise, has made himself known so that we might desire him and him only. Do you? Will you? I pray you will. Let's pray together.